This is a reading from the Revelation to St. John, chapter 21, verses 1 through 5, found on page 1041 of the Pew Bibles. Hear these words from the book that we love. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth has passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. For the former things have passed away. And he was seated on the throne, said, Behold, I am, I am making all things new. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Hey, we're concluding our series in the, on the Apostles' Creed today, which has been an enjoyable series for me. I don't know for you. I can't really say one way or the other, but I hope it has been. Uh, but next week, we are starting a new series on the female ancestors of Jesus called The Mothers of Jesus. So we're looking at all the women that are mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus in the book of Matthew. And so I just want to like... Um, I'm not a fan of trigger warnings, but here's a trigger warning. There are a lot of things in those stories that are challenging. There's abuse, there's rape, there's things like that that we should just be aware of as we go into that series. But what's also awesome about those stories is how God uses those things and, and redeems people through them. And that actually these women get mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. So I hope you'll join us for that. So the mothers of Jesus, starting next week. I think we have a title slide. Do we have a title slide there? Mothers of Jesus? I think. If not, that's okay. Hey, there we go. All right, so the mothers of Jesus, starting next week. But today we conclude our series in the Apostles' Creed with the last two lines, I believe in the resurrection of the body, which is the day when Christ returns. He'll physically raise the dead. That's what that means. And life everlasting, which is what we might call eternal life. And throughout this series, what we've been trying to show is that the Apostles' Creed outlines the gospel in a nutshell and actually helps us fulfill our calling as God's people in the world. And so we've been trying to answer this question, what truths do we as Christians proclaim in a post-truth world? So the post-truth world doesn't make any sense to you. Think about this, like how often people say like, well, it's, I'm going to share my truth. It's like there's not my truth and your truth. There's just the truth. And so we're trying to like, hey, what do we actually proclaim to a world that actually says truth is connected to an individual? It's actually relative and subjective. What do we actually proclaim to the world? So we talked about first, we talked about the need for creed, the importance of that. Uh, we talked about the God we believe in. We talked about Jesus, our Savior, which is the largest chunk of the Apostles' Creed. We talked about his victory and his death, descent and resurrection. We talked about his return. The gift of the Holy Spirit we, we jumped into, and we talked about the church as a building and a body. And then last week, Pastor Tim talked about Christ followers are forgiven and forgiving people. And today, we're going to end our series with this title. The title of my sermon is Hope That Satisfies. Hope That Satisfies. The Apostles' Creed ends by inviting us to stay away from putting our hope in things that will disappoint us. And instead, it invites us to put our hope in something that satisfies us, the certainty of an eternal relationship with the triune God. So I just have two points today. I just want to talk about hope that disappoints and contrast that with hope that satisfies. Now, hope is a funny thing. 
It's something we talk about in our culture often. So you might hear some cultural examples. You might think of Star Wars, right? Leia to Obi-Wan Kenobi says, what? You're our only hope. All right, cool. Three of you have seen this movie. Uh, you might think of Barack Obama's campaign, right? His famous poster just said hope. I hope the Eagles win the Super Bowl is one of my favorite things. And so that um, some people hope so much they actually get, if you look at the bottom half of that tattoo, right, of his arm, you see the Eagles Super Bowl champs. That was last year's Super Bowl. If you were in the future now, we know they lost. Uh, he didn't, so he hoped that they would win the Super Bowl, so he got the tattoo. And uh, I know some good guys who will cover that tattoo up pretty nice, but he decided to get the Michael Jordan crying face above that. So uh, that was a disappointing Super Bowl for all of us involved. Right? I hope the Eagles will win the Super Bowl, so much so I'll get a tattoo hoping they'll win the Super Bowl. I hope I get a raise. Bring it a little closer to home. I hope I get a raise. I hope I get that bonus. I hope that we've done enough to earn our quarterly bonus, our end-of-the-year bonus. I hope the housing market will settle down so I can buy a house. I hope. I hope everything indicates this, that this will happen, but I do hope that when I ask her to marry me, she'll say yes. I hope that I get into that college, the college of my choice. I hope Right, young people, you might be saying that now. I hope I get into that college. Or you might be in college now and you're like, I hope I'll get a good grade on that paper. So with the ancient Greeks, when they kind of talked about hope, they said, you know, humans are naturally hopeful. We're naturally hopeful people. However, they said, this kind of hope reflects both good and bad experiences. So when they talk about your future hope, they said the future was simply a projection of our own subjective possibilities. What do they mean by that? Our world, and we do it too, look at hope like the ancient Greeks. Hope, we have it, it's natural to us, but our hope is simply projecting our own subjective possibilities on the future. So here's the examples from ones I just mentioned. I hope the Eagles will win the Super Bowl. Nothing about my experience says that they will do that. I only have one time in my life that they've ever won. And even that Super Bowl, I told my son as he was getting into the Eagles for the first time, I was like, son, look, I love you. The Eagles are playing well. Carson Wentz, I know he seems good, but, you know, like, it just, things fall apart, and inevitably he hurt himself, and, you know, he's getting excited, like, son, look, like, it, this is it, season's over, Carson Wentz got injured, Nick Foles is coming in, I'm like, look, I know Nick Foles is playing well, it's just, just not going to happen, right? Um, that's all my experience with the Eagles, except for one time, so I hope they'll win the Super Bowl this year, but what makes me think they're actually going to do it? I have no, it's not based in reality, it's my own subjective possibilities that I'm projecting on the future. Here's another one. Chiefs fans, they do the same thing. They project, even though they have more to base it off of, they project that they're going to win the Super Bowl. But maybe bring it a little back. Like college students, if you're like, I did my best on this paper. I worked really hard on this paper. But I hope my professor isn't having a bad day and instead gives me a good grade. It's my own subjective possibilities that I'm projecting onto the future. I hope 
that my professor won't have a bad day and he'll give me a good grade. Or I got these SAT scores and I got these grades so I could get into this college, but the acceptance rate is 7%. So I hope the admissions office sees me as worthy of this school. I want to buy a house. So I hope the housing market chills out. Nothing about that's based in reality. You talk to realtors, they're like, please stop hoping it's going to chill out. I have a friend who's a realtor. She always says, like, marry the house, date the rate. She's like, it's not going to go down. Just buy the house and hope that you can refinance later. But still, it's hope that we can refinance later. Hope the economy picks up where we can refinance and get a nice interest rate. There's no objective truth. There's no objective basis for these things. No groundwork that's been laid to prove that these things are certain. Rather, our hope is very uncertain. It has cracks, and anything with cracks will eventually crumble. Anything. Uncertain hope will always disappoint you. Projecting your own subjective possibilities on the future will always disappoint you. Biblical hope is different, though. What biblical hope does, biblical hope is confidence in God's goodness in the present based on his goodness in the past as proof of his goodness in the future. Confidence in God's goodness in the present. I can have confidence that God, be personally confident that God will be good to me today because he showed that he's, been, he's good to me yesterday, particularly in the death and resurrection of Jesus. So when it comes to the future, I can be certain he'll be good to me tomorrow with things like the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. One day Jesus will return. One day Jesus will return, the Bible says. And if I die before that, God will raise me from the dead just like he did Jesus. And he'll give me a new body, a new resurrected body. And as Paul says, the Apostle Paul says, an imperishable, an immortal body. Just like Jesus' resurrected body. But he'll also not just resurrect me, he'll resurrect the entire cosmos. He'll resurrect all of creation. Or he'll maybe say he'll restore all creation. He'll recreate all of creation. All the, the heavens and the earth making them like they were always intended to be in, like in Genesis 1. And I will live and reign with God in the new creation for all eternity. And that quality of life we'll see is actually present to me now. And, but that's the certain hope of the Christian. There's an objective basis behind us that what we're experiencing in the present, we can have hope in the present, and we can have hope in the future. But hope that disappoints. Let's jump into the text. Let's look at Revelation 21, verses 1 through 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. 
He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Hope that disappoints. Hope will always disappoint when it's based on uncertain things. What John is doing, the author of Revelation, he, what he's doing is he's giving us a picture of this great and wonderful day when God in the future will bring all creation back to its original intent. It includes a desire to dwell among humans. And what will happen is God will actually come from heaven and dwell with us along with the new Jerusalem, which is the church, that is all Christians who died up to that point will come with him. And God will destroy the things that have made his dwelling with us in the present difficult. Sin, suffering, death, and Satan will all be destroyed. All will be destroyed. See, New Testament, the Bible says that God sent his son Jesus to defeat death and bring forgiveness of sins. And in his death, descent, and resurrection, Christ actually pronounced victory over these things. And Satan was bound at that time. Satan is in prison. He's like, on a, like a dog on a leash. All right, leash gives him certain. He can still move around. He can, you know, if you get close enough, he can still cause damage. But one day he's waiting for God to unleash him. And the only reason God is going to unleash him at that point is not so he can wreak havoc on everybody. It's only Revelation 12, and he says that God actually will release Satan. He'll unleash him just so he can destroy him. Praise God. He'll destroy him and all of his cronies. That's Revelation 20. You can read that later. But Satan and all of his cronies, all the demons, everybody who does the work of Satan have made a real mess of things, haven't they? Sin, suffering, sabotage, Satan, death, all of them have made a real mess of God's creation. One day, though, the Bible says, Revelation 21, God's going to clean it all up. He's going to clean all the mess up. So one thing it says is that the sea is no more. That might be odd to us, but, you know, you have to remember, like, large, Revelation is largely symbolic, and it's symbolic, like, here, too, where the sea is, was seen, right? the beast in Revelation comes out of the sea. Right? It's a place of chaos and disorder and evil. So God's going to get rid of that. Chaos, order, evil, it's all gone. And God will make sure that the mess won't happen again. It's not going to happen again. God will transform creation, not destroy it and make a new one. That's important for us to, to know. This isn't just like God's like, I'm going to toss that one and do another one. What he's saying is, John's saying is that God's actually going to transform creation into something new. It's not primarily like a physical transformation we might think about. Like, it's not like God is just like a better like Chip and Joanna Gaines. Like, oh, yeah, we're just going to like get some shiplap and we're going to buy all this stuff from Target that my wife always gets attracted to and you got to like yank her out of, right? It's, it's, that's not what God is. Like, it's not just, we're just going to make this look better. It's like, no, it's actually going to be better. It's going to be this transformation. It's a type of transformation that can only take place with God being present with us. And a key component of that is the resurrection of the body. 
Now, it's not particularly here in Revelation 21, but in places like 1 Corinthians 15 and Romans 8, where the Apostle Paul says that it's a mystery. And he gives us a little bit what this mystery is going to look like, what the resurrection of the body will look like. He says there in Romans 8 and 1 Corinthians 15 God, that Christ will return and we'll get resurrected bodies just like Christ's resurrected body. Now, like, I don't know much about Christ's resurrected body. We see in John, in his, John's gospel, you know, Jesus shows up with his resurrected body. Right? It has a physical element to it, right? Thomas can touch the wounds. People are able to hug him. He eats, things like that. So, which is pretty cool. Like, we're still going to eat in the, king, you know, in the new heavens and new earth, which is going to be awesome. The food will probably be, like, Michelin star, awesome food, I imagine. But there's also something different about Christ's body, right? Like he's like walking through walls. Now, I don't know if that means you're going to be able to walk through walls, but there's obviously a difference in the body. So Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 15, he uses an analogy. What he says is something like this. Our bodies are like a seed, and the life of the resurrection is like a tree. Seed and tree don't look alike. There's a difference in appearance on some level, but they share the same identity. Because, of course, a tree comes from a seed. So our bodies will be same, but somehow different. So all this to say, you're like, I'm not really tracking. This is all you have to remember. God gives us transformed bodies so that we can live in a transformed creation. So think about this. Your nagging high school sports injury, anybody got one of those? Yeah, yeah. that's going to be gone. I finally will wake up in the winter and my left shoulder won't be hurting from that baseball injury. The threat of cancer resurfacing, they'll be gone. The hamstrings that ain't what they used to be, they'll be better. The bags under your eyes, we're not going to say they're there because of kids, right? They probably are, but just to say, those bags that you have under your eyes, they're going to be gone. And the parts of your body that you're most ashamed of will be transformed and restored. But not only that, everything's going to be transformed. So even the threat of being taken advantage of again or the person who hurt you or abused you or assaulted you, that's going to be gone. That threat of that person ever showing up and doing that thing again is gone. The pain of loneliness from the spouse that abandoned you, gone. The fear of death or wars and rumors of war, gone. All of it's going to be gone. And the Bible says that, that transformation has already begun in Christ in the present with the gift of eternal life. When we think of eternal life, sometimes we can think of eternal life as endless life, a quantity of life. So there's a story that Argentine writer Jorge Luis Borges once wrote, excuse me, Borges, of a man who drinks from the river of immortality and becomes immortal. But what he finds, this man finds, is that without death, life starts to lack definition. It doesn't mean anything to him anymore. So one day, what that man does, he learns of another river that can take immortality away. So he, for centuries, he wanders the earth and drinks from every spring and river that he can find, seeking to end the curse of endless life. And so Borges writes this, he says, Death makes men precious and pathetic. Their ghostliness is touching any 
act they perform may be their last. What's this, what's this, what do I mean by this? Your life won't simply get better by increasing its quantity. It will only get better if you change its quality. Eternal life is a change of quality, not quantity. Yes, there's endlessness to that, there's foreverness, there's eternity to all that, but it's really a quality of life that begins in the present for those who attach themselves to Jesus. So like 1 John 1, 2 says that Jesus himself is eternal life. We attach ourselves to Jesus, who's eternal life. We are, we experience eternal life. Jesus says in John 3, 36, that the Father gives eternal life to anyone who trusts in Jesus. So our lives lived in the present actually reflect the future reality with God in Christ. It starts now and continues forever. Biblical hope is a change of quality. But what our world does, it builds its hope, a hope that disappoints on quantity. Let me give you some examples of this. It's always about more of something. So economic, more money. Notice that it's quantity. If I just have more money, if I get that raise or if I buy that house, then I'll finally be happy. Life will be better. We do technological things. If we have more technology, when I get this phone or when I get rid of this phone and get a new one or when they invent something that will do this, then life will be better. Or there's political aspects of that. More political quantity. More power. Well, when this guy's in office or as long as we keep this guy out of office, some of you will get that on the way home, then I can feel safe. More. Or maybe relational, there's more companionship. If I could just have more companionship, so when I get married, I won't be lonely anymore. Or more sex. When I sleep with him or her, or just one more website, one more video, then I'll be fulfilled. Hope built on quantity will always disappoint us. I know I do this personally, all the time, which is why my hope can often be so uncertain, because it's built on this like endless, exhausting pursuit of more of the next best thing. Well, if I could just get the next best thing. If I could have more time to myself, when my kids grow up and move out, that's going to be a great day. My wife and I can actually talk to each other without interruption. It's really awesome. We don't have to wait till that time. We put them to bed, and then like we say, hey, you want to hang out and watch a show or something? We both crash on the couch. No relationship really happening there. We're just falling asleep. One day, that's going to be better when I have more time. And look, I'm not saying things like a house or being politically involved or getting married are bad in and of themselves. What I'm saying is they're a problem when we put our hope in them to transform us and our world because they're so uncertain. If you get married, who says that marriage is going to last forever? Even if you get that house, who says you didn't buy a money pit? Hope is captive 
Or hope like that is captive to uncertainty. It's built on quantity, not quality. It's building our hope. Like the ancient Greeks said, it's just, it's just us projecting our own subtle, or sorry, our own subjective possibilities onto the future. And like I said, a hope built on that has cracks. And anything built with cracks will crumble and it will come crashing down and it will crush you and me in the process. That's not what God wants from us. God doesn't want you to hope in uncertain things. He doesn't want you to hope in quantity. He wants you to have a hope that satisfies. And so we pick up again in Revelation 21. Pick up in verse 6. Listen to this. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, to the thirsty. Oh, man, can you feel that? Like how many feel thirsty? unsatisfied. I will give you, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this as his his heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Hope that satisfies, hope that satisfies is not built on uncertainty. It's not built on quantity. It's built on the satisfaction of a relationship with God. God promises to satisfy your thirst. To satisfy the thirst of those who remain faithful to him to the end. That's what it means for those who conquer. is those who've been faithful to him to the end. So for those of us, those of you who put your trust in Christ and you remain faithful to him until death, God says you will be rewarded with the only thing that's truly satisfied, me, God himself. He will be your reward as your father, and you will be his son. And if you have biblical hope, the hope we're talking about, you can have confidence in God's goodness in the present based on his goodness in the past as proof of his goodness in the future. You can guarantee, you can take it to the bank if you have biblical hope that the resurrection of the body and life everlasting will be yours. And so even the ultimate fear we all have to face in death, that will be removed. I think you might be here, you might be skeptical of this, you might be cynical towards this, and you're like, look, how can we be sure That biblical hope isn't us just projecting, again, our own subjective possibilities on the future too. How can we be sure that that's not going to be the case? In 2 Samuel, God made a covenant with the great king of Israel, David. And he promised that a son of David would come. And he would sit on David's throne forever. So 2 Samuel 7.14, he says, I, listen, listen to this, it's the same language here in Revelation 21. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. What we know from the story of Solomon, who's David's son, he wasn't the ultimate son of David. Solomon failed to live like God's son time and time again, and God promised, though, even when he fails, I'm still going to love the line of David. I'm still going to care for them. I'm still going to love them. It's going to be everlasting But he fails and he fails and he fails and he fails. And sons of David after Solomon are just a long list of failures to live up to God's standards. 
So God, again, in the past, our past, proved again that he's good. What God did is he proved he's trustworthy. He's proved he's true. He proved that he's certain. So what God did is to prove his promises, to prove what he said he was going to do, that they're not just subjective things, subjective possibilities that we're projecting onto the future. He proved that he's trustworthy and certain. He he himself, God the Son, came and he was born in the line of David. He dwelt with God's people He redeemed the family line and he took on their sin, but not only their sins, but yours and mine as well, onto himself. And he went to the cross and died for them there. And he rose from the dead as the faithful son of David. And the Bible says, by when we attach ourselves, when you attach yourself to the faithful son of David through faith, the promises of God to David become yours through the Holy Spirit. And because Christ was faithful, God without hesitation can call him son. And because of Christ, he without hesitation can call you son. He can say to you, I will be a father to you and you shall be like a son to me. You can have confidence in God's goodness in the present towards you as his son now. Based on the goodness that he's shown in the past to his son Jesus in in his resurrection as proof of his goodness in the future to raise you from the dead, to call you his son, and to reign with him forever. And I'll just encourage you, look, ladies, I know like being called a son is, it applies to you too. Like the same way that when we're called the bride of Christ, it applies to men, all right? So let's not get weird about it, all right? What the Bible's trying to tell us is that our hope is not in a thing, but a person, a very trustworthy person, a perfect person, Christ who loved us and gave himself up for us so that we might be called sons of God. And on that future day, those of us who have put our faith in Christ will have the thirst of our hope quenched by God and his goodness. But I will say there is a warning here. Not everyone will have God proclaim their sonship over them. God will not call everyone son. There will be those who've heard the invitation to put their hope in Christ, yet they chose to put their hope in things that disappoint rather than him. So look at verse 8. We'll look at this and we'll, we'll move to the close of the sermon. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for, the mur- for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars... Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Look, if you're not a Christian here today, this is 100% true of you. God will not call you his son when Jesus returns if you do not attach yourself to his son, Jesus, by putting your faith in him. But listen to me. All of you who claim the name of Christ, who claim to be Christians, listen to me. Look at me. This passage is actually not for non-Christians. It's for Christians. 
This actually refers to those who have claimed in this life to put their hope in Christ, but never actually did. Right? You remember the story of Jesus talking about the sower throwing seeds that some did not produce crops? That's what he's talking about. Some people, Jesus, will, you'll, will hear the gospel. They might even claim the name of Jesus. They might read their Bible. They might raise their hands in service, but it's never actually been a transformation of their hearts. They never actually had their hope transformed because they were so focused on putting their hope on things of this world. So God cannot and will not call them sons. Instead, they'll experience death for a second time. What I want from this warning for us, it's not like, oh, geez, like, am I even a Christian? I think that's always a question to ask, Father, has the gospel actually been a plant in my heart? Has it changed my heart? I'm not asking you to say, what do I need to do more of, right? That's quantity talk. We're talking about quality. But my question for all of us is, what's your hope really in? When you hear about the hope of, this, of sonship, is that satisfying to you? Is it satisfying to me? Does biblical hope quench my thirst? Or am I going looking for something else to do it? Does the hope of a resurrected body give us confidence in the present goodness of God, or does it just seem impossible? Does eternal life with God sound wonderful, or does it bore us? Like, we think we're just going to be like little, like, like fat baby angels, like playing harps, right? Like, is that what we, we look at eternal life with God? We need to take stock of our lives and ask those questions. And the good news is if you're asking those questions, the Holy Spirit, the Bible says, is active in you. You are a son. Only sons really ask that question. Does, does the eternal life feel like to you like it's this wonderful thing you want to experience? Or does it seem like it's like life, endless life without definition? Is our hope in quality or quantity? And the truth is, the best way we can really take stock of our lives is with the prospect of death. The prospect of death will help you determine what your hope is attached to. I didn't make this up. Somebody else said this once, that chaos reveals character. And the chaos of death will reveal what our hope is truly in. When you see death in places like Israel and Gaza or in Ukraine or you hear about the fentanyl epidemic, or you see gun violence time and time again in our schools, on our streets, is our first move to put our hope in economics? Well, we just need to toss some more money around. Is our first hope in technology? Well, you know what we need? We need better ads. We need better ads to go out on social media, on Facebook. I refuse to call it X, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat. We need the ads to go out to all these people to create greater awareness on social media, or I need to do it. This, like, look, post the things you believe in. That that's fine on some level. But like, you, no one has ever had their mind changed by your Facebook post. I'm just letting you know right now, no one ever has. Or do we like? Or we? As our first move is politics, right? Congress needs to do something about this. And all that might be true on some level, but that should be our second, third, and fourth moves. Our first move is your first move to run to God. Ask him in prayer to help us. God, help us 
do our best to address these things. Help us do our best to address gun violence. God, help us to do something for Israel or Ukraine. God, help us address the fentanyl epidemic. Help us, God. But also help us to never put our hope in anyone or anything but you. The great evangelist Billy Graham, approaches, when approaching his own death, he said this, this life is only the setup for the life to come. This life is only the setup for the life to come. What we hope in now will be revealed in the life to come, and may we never forget that. So it's also important to remind ourselves that one day, death will come for all of us. I know some of you be like, look, you're young, and I know some of you are like, yo, dude, that's right around the corner for you, bro. I get that. Some of us feel like on the timeline, a little bit closer to death than the rest of us, but death eventually will come for all of us. So it's important to remind ourselves that. But the amazing effect of biblical hope, and I'll leave you with this, is that it's not just hope I get in the future. It's confidence I can have now. Because the more biblical hope you have, the more satisfying life becomes in this strange, amazing way as you approach death. So J.I. Packer says this, as he, he's now passed away, but he said this as he's approaching death. He says, as I get older, I find that I appreciate God and people and good and lovely and noble things more and more intensely. So it is pure delight to think that this enjoyment will continue and increase in some form. What form God knows, and I'm content to wait and see, but literally forever. Christians inherit, in fact, the destiny that fairy tales envision in fancy. We, yes, you and I, the silly saved sinners, live and live happily. And by God's endless mercy, we will live happily ever after. But the, Ace, the Apostles' Creed reminds us, as it closes, is of the satisfying nature of biblical hope. So may you, so may for you, may the Holy Spirit pour confidence in God's goodness into your hearts in the present. may be based on his goodness to you in Christ in the past as proof of God's goodness in the future. So let's pray, and then we're going to stand and say the Apostles' Creed together. Let's remind ourselves as it ends on that note of satisfying hope, let's continue to say that and proclaim it to our world.